You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. And welcome to Belabored Episode 84. Today, we will be talking with Barnard Professor Premila Nadison about her new book about domestic worker organizing in the 1960s and 1970s. But first, the news. And the big news in college athletics was not about any kind of big win or loss, but rather sort of stunning anticlimactic non-ruling by the National Labor Relations Board in what could have been a landmark case involving the football players at Northwestern University who uh, campaigned uh, to establish labor rights for football players on private university campuses. And the NLRB actually declined to rule in the case, holding the that, quote, asserting jurisdiction would not promote labor stability because it would supposedly disrupt the level playing field in the Big Ten Conference because it is divided between public and private universities. And the board said, quote, it does not have jurisdiction over state-run colleges and universities, which constitute 108 of the roughly 125 FBS teams. So basically, they are saying we're not going to rule on this because it would be too disrupting to the athletic conference if we said that this one group of student athletes has labor rights and uh, that had no bearing on the other student athletes. Basically, they punted on this. And it's unfortunate, and Dave Zirin, my colleague at The Nation, called the decision, or rather non-decision, cowardly as well as blatantly ignorant or disregarding the fact that uh, the NCAA is already actually as corrupt as hell. So it's not like they're disrupting any kind of level uh, playing field. Basically, it's a scandal-engulfed, corruption-ridden system that regularly exploits uh, student workers by calling them student-athletes and not acknowledging the fact that they should have some power over the conditions of their labor. Um, And the things that they were advocating for were not, uh, they weren't asking for wages. Uh, They were simply trying to establish their right to join a union. And they were worried about things like medical care. They were worried about things like adequate stipends. And all of those issues are being sort of left by the wayside now because the NLRB has refused to wade into this controversial field. We caught up with Lee Adler of Cornell University, who talked with us previously on Belabored about this issue with the Northwestern football players, to get his thoughts on the latest ruling and what bearing it might have on other groups of student workers. In March or April 2014, when we talked about it, there uh, was a lot of buzz around the country, partially because uh, something like this had never happened before, partially because college athletics as business uh, was coming under greater scrutiny, especially the NCAA was. People were very surprised that Northwestern was the school that came out of the box swinging, meaning it's it's, uh, students. Um, and its workers, if you will, uh, despite what the National Labor Relations Board said yesterday. Uh, Northwestern has protested vigorously that, in fact, all of its football players that sought to be unionized were merely students and, and, and not also workers. This latest decision, legally speaking, pushes back a lot of the the hope and, and um, uh, sense of inspiration that the fight uh, that the Northwestern uh, football players uh, undertook. Um, I say that because 
if I'm not mistaken, in one part of the decision, they noted that of the 120-some biggest teams, well over 100 are in public universities, which would mean uh, that uh, they, meaning the National Labor Relations Board, does not have jurisdiction over them because they're not, quote-unquote, private employees. Uh, Legally speaking, um, given the rationale that was advanced by the board, um, it's hard to locate uh, how the Northwestern folks and the steel workers and uh, their union are going to do a whole lot better on appeal. And that was Lee Adler of Cornell University. This week, housekeepers, banquet, and restaurant workers at the Long Beach Weston Hotel at Long Beach, California, filed a class action lawsuit alleging that they've been victims of numerous wage and hour violations, including off-the-clock work, denial of meal and rest breaks, and the failure to reimburse them for work supplies. Housekeepers report being forced to work off the clock before their shifts officially begin and purchasing their own supplies because they are not provided with the tools they need for the job. Plaintiff Juana Malara said, quote, although my work shift doesn't begin till 8 a.m., I am expected to start working well before that to prepare my cart with all the cleaning supplies I will need throughout the day. I've also purchased gloves to better protect my hands and have brought my own cleaning supplies from home because the hotel does not provide what is necessary for me to clean all of the rooms, even though I am expected to leave each one of them spotless. Servers in the restaurant and banquet areas report being denied legally required breaks and working entire shifts without bathroom breaks because their areas are so understaffed. The hotel workers have been organizing for a while with a coalition called Stand with Women Against Abuse, a group of clergy, community organizations, women's groups, and health professionals. Last month, they held a march to call attention to the sexual harassment of housekeepers by hotel customers, as well as the problems mentioned above. We have spoken before on this podcast, of course, of the challenges hotel housekeepers face from the hard physical work to the unwanted attentions of customers who think that women, mainly women of color, doing work in an intimate space like a hotel room means that those women are open for any kind of abuse. For more on that, you can, of course, go way back to episode four, where we talk to hotel housekeeper and organizer Kathy Youngblood. We will keep you updated on this case as it progresses. Well, contrary to popular belief, Wall Street is not all full of filthy lucre slashing around. In fact, a new report from the National Employment Law Center shows that uh, your friendly bank teller is actually probably a fast food worker of Wall Street, if you will. Uh, The report talks about the working conditions faced by retail banking workers and exposes the uh, rather horrific and extremely stressful and arduous working conditions uh, endured by many of the day-to-day wage laborers that make the financial district run, um, but are not uh, pushing around the big money, you know, like hedge fund managers and the like. The National Employment Law Project found that of the nearly 1.7 million people working within retail banking, almost one in three, more than half a million, are in occupations with with median hourly wages below $15. That includes bank tellers, about 470,000 of them nationwide, and uh, they are earning, um, oh, less than $13 an hour. And it also includes uh, security guards, it also includes uh, maintenance workers, and janitors, 
Um, and the uh, report outlines the wage structure, which shows that not only are uh, people like financial clerks and credit authorizers earning uh, well below a living wage in many parts of the country, but among tellers, more than 80% of tellers are women, which shows both a gender divide as well as a class divide within the banking workforce. Um, not only that, but within these big banks as workplaces, the conditions are often extremely exploitative and abusive. Nearly a quarter of the workers that were surveyed by one advocacy group said they had seen cuts in their benefits since 2008, and this was combined with bone-crushing stress that they endured day to day, which involved uh, you know, shouldering more and more of the burden, working longer and longer in hours to make up for uh, an increasingly thin staff due to systematic layoffs. Uh, a 2014 study by uh, researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, found that about 30% of tellers nationwide receive public assistance, including food stamps and Medicaid. And in New York, especially about 30,000 bank tellers in New York um, are making these low wages, and about half of them are earning less than $15 an hour. So something to keep in mind as we work towards that wage board decision for fast food workers, what other sectors of low-wage workers in the state are also deserving of a raise. That would be all of them, Michelle. <laughs> um, that in these times where both Michelle and I used to work, uh, there is an excellent and depressing new investigation into just how bad the U.S.'s family leave system is. Written and reported by Sharon Lerner, who is an expert in the field of family policy, whatever family policy exists here. The study talks to women who work in colleges and factories, in retail, and in nonprofits, all of whom are forced by a non-existent support system to go back to work within just weeks or even days of giving birth. Pairing those stories of women who are leaning in so hard they're falling over with analysis of hard data, the report is a damning indictment of the U.S., which, as longtime belabored listeners probably know, is not the only is not only the only major industrialized nation, but actually one of the only nations, period, that doesn't guarantee some form of paid parental leave. Small countries like Suriname and Papua New Guinea are our competitors, and we are the richest country in the world. As Lerner notes, paid leave has many benefits for parents and children, leaving infants healthier and parents happier, and yet only 13% of U.S. workers have any form of paid family leave through their jobs. Unsurprisingly, highly paid workers are the most likely, and unionized workers more likely than non-union workers to have this benefit. Which we shouldn't really think of as a benefit, we should think of it as a friggin' necessity. Anyway, in the wake of any paid or in the lack of any paid leave, parents stitched together the unpaid leave guaranteed by the Family and Medical Leave Act signed by Bill Clinton with any sick time, built-in vacations like summers off or um, in the case of colleges, the winter break, and then they just go back to work quickly. The most shocking new finding in this report is that 12% of women in a 2012 study took a week or less off to have a new baby and nearly one in four women were back at work in two weeks. That includes stories like one woman whose premature birth left her ineligible for even the FMLA leave since she'd been at her job less than the required year, forced her back into the workplace in less than two weeks, her baby still in the hospital connected to oxygen and a feeding tube. And she has a relatively good job at a college. For workers in low-wage fields like Raven Osborne, a waitress at IHOP, the choice is simple. Go back to work and even probably pick up another job doing overnight shifts at a gas station in order to support your new baby and continue to work on her college degree. We should mention at this juncture that another Clinton-era policy, welfare reform, that ensured that, mothers, ensured that mothers like Osborne had no support for spending time caring for their children and were pushed into low-wage work instead. 
The other Clinton, Hillary, has made family leave a part of her campaign platform, and Bernie Sanders, as Lerner notes in the article, has an even more developed plan for family leave. It's heartening to see this issue taking precedence on the campaign trail this year, but it will be an uphill battle and has been for decades. For more on this issue, you can check out Belabored episode 51 with Ellen Bravo, who is one of the people who's been fighting that fight for those decades. And I should mention that somehow in between leading the charge on this issue, Ellen Bravo has written her first novel again and again, which I am reading right now, because Ellen makes me feel like a slacker. And this week we have an interview with Pramila Madison, who is the author of Household Workers Unite. She is a noted scholar activist and associate professor of history at Barnard College. And she talked to us about the domestic workers movement of yesteryear and what it means for women and social movements today. In the introduction to your book, you talk about how worker organizing is often left out of the stories that we hear about domestic workers. And throughout the book, you talk about how important it was that these workers told their own stories and define their own labor. I've written critically myself about how labor reporting often relies on sort of sob stories that leave out the agency of these workers. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of letting workers define their own narrative? Yes. Um, I think that's incredibly important. Um, We hear a lot about domestic workers, about household workers, especially today in the press. We hear stories of their victimization, of their vulnerability, of their inability to fight back, their status as undocumented workers. And I think that perspective of domestic workers as being vulnerable uh, and unable to defend themselves has a longstanding history. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, if if you actually look at the history of domestic workers, there's a very long history of organizing, and it dates back to the 19th century. Uh, The first documented organizing among household workers that we know about was in Atlanta in 1881, when washerwomen organized um, to demand higher rates for their work um, and formed a citywide union and went on strike and eventually shut the city of Atlanta down. In the 1930s, it was another wave of household worker organizing. Um, And then what I write about is in the post-war period, um, and in the Montgomery bus boycott, in the midst of the civil rights movement, and through their own organization, household workers did, in fact, organize. They spoke out. They resisted. They challenged employers. They lobbied politicians. um, They worked to change laws successfully. And I think it's a very different perspective of household workers, as seeing them as agents uh, of history, seeing them uh, defining a new political history, not just for themselves, but for the nation, for the, for the meaning of the New Deal, for example. Household workers were denied uh, the basic rights of labor that were granted to most workers in the 1930s. They didn't have the right to minimum wage, for example. But it was through a campaign in the 1970s that household workers did, in fact, gain the right to minimum wage in 1974. So I think that we have to sort of move away from this idea that domestic workers are vulnerable and are unable to speak on behalf um, of their own rights. And the women, uh, the African-American women that I write about, did, in fact, tell their own stories. They told their own stories about the meaning of their labor. And I think one of the most important things for them was the question of dignity and respect and being viewed as a worker since household work had been outside the purview of 
labor and the labor movement for so many decades. Um, and they told stories about their mothers, about their grandmothers, about their aunts, um, who had all worked as domestic workers. And these stories become a very much a part of their organizing campaign, and it becomes very much a part of how they want to transform the occupation as well. Also early on the book, and you just mentioned um, the organizing done in the 1930s by, you know, in many cases, radical women who were involved in the Communist Party and their work to expose like the Bronx slave market, other things like that, and how that work was kind of stamped out of history by the Red Scare. And then now, when we hear a lot about the Domestic Workers Alliance now, we sort of don't hear about the women that you've written about in this book. And like, how do we keep losing this history? And how do we fight so that we make sure we don't lose it again? I think part of the blame for that might actually lay with historians. Uh, Historians are the ones who tell us the history, are the ones who are defining history for us. Uh, We have narratives about the civil rights movement that have emerged that are very male-centered narratives, uh, and historians have told us those stories. We have narratives of the women's movement that are really centered on white middle-class women. So I think it's really essential, it's imperative Uh, that people who care about the histories of working-class people, especially working-class women of color, to unearth these histories uh, and to give voice to these actors who really have been muted. And they they haven't been silenced because silenced, I think, suggests that they never spoke, but they did, in fact, speak. But they've been muted, and their voices aren't being heard in the same way um, that I think they ought to be heard, that I think helps us redefine what organizing in the 1930s was about that helps us understand that the 1950s was not simply a period of McCarthyism, but in that period you had household workers who were also finding in some way to create a space of autonomy in their workplaces and in their communities. Um, Throughout the book, when you're discussing their sort of movement strategy, you talk about how many of these women were also involved with the civil rights movement and how they adapted some of the rhetoric and the tactics of the civil rights movement at the time and uh, the street protests that were going on. They sort of moved them into the more intimate space of, uh, of household labor. Um, can you discuss a little bit further how they kind of fused those two and how they sort of leveraged their personal relationships with the families they served on the one hand, but also brought in some of that more uh, militant element from the streets? Mm-hmm. I think one of the best examples of this is Georgia Gilmore, which is a name of a woman who many people have probably never heard, but who was one of the most important individuals in the Montgomery bus boycott. And the Montgomery bus boycott is perhaps best known for propelling Martin Luther King into the national spotlight. We all know the name of Rosa Parks. But Georgia Gilmore was a domestic worker who lived in Montgomery who started an organization of maids and cooks called the Club from Nowhere. And she organized domestic workers in Montgomery to raise money for the boycott effort. Uh, They bought chicken, they made fried chicken and sandwiches, they they baked pies, they baked cakes, and they sold these to people as as a way to to raise money um, in service of the boycott. And I think that um, both their leadership uh, in terms of supporting the boycott and mobilizing other household workers in support of the boycott, as well as the ways in which the notion of developing a collective community 
became absolutely essential to the ways in which household workers could then challenge their employers. Uh, and there, were, there was a series of interviews that were done during the Montgomery bus boycott that illustrates the ways in which household workers actually stood up to their employers and challenged the expectations around work, challenged pay, challenged the way they had been treated. And so for household workers, the question of dignity that centered so much around the right to sit where you wanted to on a bus uh, expanded or extended into the household as well, where they work, to say we deserve to be treated as full human beings, not only on the bus, but in our places of employment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about the organizing of these women was how aware they were that their work had this legacy that was connected to slavery. Can you talk about how that inspired their organizing and how they, that affected the tactics that they used to organize? Yeah. The th- trope of slavery came up again and again uh, among the stories that the women told. And in the book, I really emphasize and I focus on the stories that they told. And I focus on the stories that they told because I think their stories tell us something about how they understood history. It tells us something about how they understood this occupation. And it tells us something about how they sought to mobilize other domestic workers as well. And I think the trope of slavery was important because it suggests the racialization of the occupation, the ways in which African-American women are coming from a history of slavery, uh, where they were household workers, as well as field workers, but also household workers, and the way there was a continuity in that occupation and their confinement to domestic service even after the end of slavery. And so they talked about the history of slavery and needing to break free from that history of slavery, which meant transforming the occupation and the way they were treated and the kind of compensation that they received. One of the stories that came up again and again, which, and you had just mentioned this, the Bronx slave markets. So the Bronx slave markets uh, emerged in the midst of the Great Depression in the 1930s. And these were street corners around New York City, although they weren't confined to New York City. They were really all over the country, but most prominently in New York City. Street corners where African-American women who were unable to find work stood uh, waiting for someone to come pick them up for a day's work. Uh, and they might get paid 15 or 20 cents an hour for their labor. They were often exploited, uh, expected to do things that other household workers were not expected to do or expected to work very long hours. Two African-American journalists, Ella Baker and Marvel Cook, actually wrote uh, an expose about the Bronx slave market, and their, their essay was titled The Bronx Slave Market, which is where the name came from. And the article and the attention that African-American women journalists gave to the Bronx slave market created uh, a sensation throughout New York City. There was massive reform efforts that were uh, initiated after this in the end of the Depression in the late 30s and early 40s to eliminate the Bronx slave markets. So the Bronx slave markets declined to a large degree, despite the fact that levels of exploitation obviously still continued in the occupation. Uh, One of the women I write about, uh, Geraldine Miller, who lived in the Bronx, uh, actually not far from where the original Bronx slave markets emerged, 
uh, talked about the Bronx slave markets and talked about hearing stories of women who stood on the street corners and employers driving by looking for the women with the most scarred knees. Um, and what Miller said is the reason they were looking for the most scarred knees is because those women were the ones who scrubbed floors down on their hands and knees. And that's what employers were looking for. And so for Miller, that story about the scarred knees, that story about the Bronx slave market, became a way for her to rally other domestic workers to say, no more. We are not going to scrub floors down on our hands and knees anymore. So it became a way for her to not only talk about that history of racialization, but to talk about a way forward and a different kind of um, sort of treatment of household workers. I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about the the role that they played in service labor, providing it to the civil rights movement, like you were talking about, um, how they cooked food and other things like that, and how their role is kind of interpreted today in the even in the historiography of the civil rights movement. We often think of domestic workers as the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement, as the ones who went to the church meetings, as the ones who marched in Montgomery. They were the supporters of the male leaders of the movement. And, uh, in fact, that's not true. Uh, and as I mentioned with Georgia Gilmore, she was certainly someone who exhibited leadership, who, who was able to rally other domestic workers in support of the boycott. Um, but I think there's also a way in which the household worker organizing that emerged um, in the latter part of the civil rights movement also begins to redefine fundamentally the meaning of the civil rights movement. So it no longer becomes about civil rights, but it becomes about black freedom more broadly. As they begin to talk about issues related to labor, as they begin to talk about issues related to labor law, about the way they're treated in the household, about hiring practices and policies, this, I think, offers us a different angle and a different vision to think about the black freedom movement. So it's not just about ending Jim Crow segregation. It's not just about the elimination of those Southern-based laws, but it's really about transforming how we understand labor, uh, and I also believe how we understand labor organizing and the labor movement. So women's leadership was absolutely central to civil rights organizing. Um, and I, I think there's been a little bit written about that, but I also think these women help us understand labor organizing in a very different light. Yeah. One of the other things that, that struck me about this book, obviously there were a lot of them, it's an excellent book, you should all read it, um, was that they really pushed very hard for professionalization, for sort of skills training, for saying that the the skills that they had were skills and not some sort of innate quality that black women had for scrubbing floors and that that they were you know that they were trained professionals and you talk a little bit more about that and how that kind of work became very central to this organizing the movement was largely not solely a movement for respect and dignity they wanted minimum wage protections they wanted higher wages they wanted control of their labor 
but they wanted to be recognized as workers. And I think that was really, if we had to sum up what this movement was about, it was a recognition of their labor as work and to be treated the same as all other workers. And that is repeated in the movement over and over again. Um, and that meant many things to them. It meant how their employers referred to them or what, what their employers called them. For many of these workers, their employers called them by their first name or they called them maids or they called them servants. And the women in this movement insisted on being called household technicians. Uh, that was their preferred reference. And, and I think that term household technicians signifies exactly what you're talking about. This idea that a technician is a skilled worker. A technician is somebody who uh, has a body of training that can help them carry out their responsibilities. Many of the women uh, started training programs um, and they wanted to divide up the various kinds of skills that a household worker engaged in. So childcare, for example, was very different from cooking, which was very different from uh, elder care, which was very different uh, from cleaning, right? So all of these various tasks, they believe, ought to be separated, and one could hire someone for their specific skills in a specific area, but this idea that you're going to hire somebody to do everything, and during that period when they're in your house, uh, they will do anything and everything you ask of them was kind of an outmoded way of thinking about this, because that was the ultimate definition of what a servant was is you essentially own that individual for a period of time as opposed to understanding that that individual has a certain set of skills and they will complete a certain set of a certain number of tasks and once those tasks are done their job is done right um Connected to that, we, we often hear, still hear around domestic work, the line that they're part of the family um, as an excuse for sort of how they're expected to do all of these different things, or the idea that, you know, particularly people who are responsible for childcare are doing it out of love. Can you talk a little bit about the way that the domestic workers, both in your book and also, you know, in the present, I know you've done work with the domestic workers organizing today on this issue. And particularly in this case, how that allowed them to, to point out the racism that they faced? There, this trope of one of the family has been one that has defined the occupation um, for many generations. Uh, and I think the idea is that, and I think it's, it's very connected to the way in which household work Ha is tied to women's unpaid labor in the home. So there is an expectation that historically wives would do this work out of love, uh, without pay. And I think there was a parallel assumption that household workers would similarly do this work uh, for love with very little pay or would work extended hours to carry out their responsibilities. Household workers uh, question the very premise that they would be considered part of the family uh, and be expected to work extended hours when, in fact, they weren't treated as part of the family. They weren't treated as family members, and they were very often expected to use the back door. Uh, many employers had separate restrooms for domestic workers, had separate silverware for them, uh, wouldn't allow them to sit in the living room, for example. You know, I think Carolyn Reed summed it up best when she put it very succinctly. I don't want a family. I need a job. 
And I think fundamentally, uh, that's where most household workers really came down on this issue. They wanted to be treated as workers. They didn't want to be treated as family members. Uh, and they didn't, and, and they wanted to be paid as workers. One of the anecdotes I remember is um, in one of the oral histories uh, of, the, of the women that you profile, she talked about having to eat the child's leftovers, and that was yes. just such a... The question of food, I think, is one that was very prominent in their stories, and it's another way in which I think they told stories about food, whether it was eating the leftovers that were given to them from the night before, uh, whether it was being given food that was old, and Geraldine Miller talked about eating a che- or being served a cheese sandwich that was incredibly hard, as she put it, so hard that it would hurt you in the head if you uh, if I threw it at you. Or once eating something that the, like a steak the husband had bitten into, something exactly. like that. Yes. yes. Right. You know, and I think the stories of food are really important because what it suggests is a kind of dehumanization, right, of the occupation, that in fact employers felt comfortable serving their workers as food because they didn't see them as full human beings. And so I think the stories of food, again, become a way to think about and talk about how to transform the terms of the occupation. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, building on the whole idea of how they fit into the household dynamics, um, is there any of you just explain how they... Uh, the domestic workers movement um, fit in or uh, maybe existed in tension with other strands of feminism at the time? Absolutely. One of the most interesting ways to think about this movement and and, and to read the history is through the lens of the women's movement. The household workers movement Uh, in some ways developed very strong alliances with feminists and with the women's movement. This wasn't something that was necessarily self-evident. There, in fact, was a, a history of tension between employers and employees. Employers tended to be the women of the household. And so there was a class division and there was a race division between employers and employees. And as more and more women entered the workforce in the post-war period, Uh, they relied more heavily on household workers. And, of course, it was in their interest and sometimes out of necessity to hire inexpensive household workers and to get as much work out of them as possible. So there was almost a built-in tension in the employer-employee relationship between women who were more privileged and women who were less privileged. But interestingly, the movement in the 1970s worked very hard to build alliances with mainstream feminists, and they did it with organizations such as NOW, with people like Gloria Steinem, and they did it primarily around uh, pushing for passage of amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, in the early 70s that would bring minimum wage protections to household workers. So this was a national campaign And the household technicians uh, worked very closely with mainstream feminists. And they did so around this notion of housework being women's work, whether women were paid for it, as was the case with domestic workers, or not paid for it, as was the case with housewives. Um, And their basic claim was this work is undervalued, and it's undervalued for all of us, and it's in all of our interests, whether we're employers, employees, or housewives, 
to put greater value and recognition on this labor. And so they were able to, I think, successfully build alliances. It's not clear if in the long term those alliances were successful and if uh, there was really recognition by female employers of the need to pay workers adequately and to treat them like workers, because we still know the problem is ongoing. Uh, We still know that there are domestic workers who are still exploited. And I think that is partly about the employer-employee relationship. I think it's partly about bigger issues of social policy. And I think in the long run, we can't and we shouldn't place the burden solely on individual employers. And I think we have to be, begin to think in broader ways about how to address the issues of child care, how to address the issues of elder care in a more systematic way uh, than simply the single employer-employee relationship. Yeah. I, I don't know if this speaks to uh, how far the movement is, uh, you know, how much more work there is to be done or what it achieved in the past, but you certainly see resonance of, of that, the idea of, of uh, all household work sort of being in, in one kind of, like, sphere right now because with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, you certainly see many of the people out in force are actually the employers as well who are also using this as a platform to campaign for more equitable uh, policy around mothers and families um, who are working households. So, uh. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think that, you know, if, again, if we think about this as a labor movement, household workers had a very different approach to dealing with employers than most labor organizers yeah. did. Uh, and that is, in most labor movements, the employer is the enemy, right? The employer is somebody you want to uh, negotiate with, but somebody who you also want to wield leverage and power against. Uh, And I think domestic workers, partly because they were working in very intimate spaces with employers, uh, that was a very difficult position to take. Uh, They wanted to maintain comfortable uh, work environments. And so that meant, in most cases, working with employers and convincing them and persuading them and developing alliances with them rather than simply uh, organizing against them. And... On that note, you talk about uh, how the household workers movement kind of evolved in the 70s with sort of structural changes in the economy. Uh, So how did the household workers movement change um, with the 1970s and the 1980s as more women started to move into sort of the waged outside of home workplace? Well, African-American women uh, uh, who led this movement actually increasingly began to leave the occupation. So we see an outflux of African-American women from domestic work in the 1970s, partly because of the elimination of Jim Crow barriers that had prevented African-American women from entering other kinds of occupations. And we begin to see an influx of immigrant women. Actually, at the very moment when this movement is at its peak is when the occupation is shifting. Uh, There's a shift in immigration laws in 1965 that allows more women of color uh, to come to this country from Asia, Africa, and other parts of the world. And they begin to serve increasingly as the domestic labor force. The ethnic composition, the racial composition of domestic work is changing throughout the 1970s, one of the things that struck me about this movement is the ways in which the leaders of the movement actually embraced or attempted to embrace the immigrant workers who were entering the occupation. Some of these were undocumented, some were not, but their basic approach was how do we bring these women 
into our movement with us? How do we get them to join with us? How do we work closely with them? They weren't always successful in doing that. There were a few instances when they were, but by and large, they were not that successful. But I think their commitment to developing a multiracial movement is instructive, and it suggests something about their vision of labor organizing um, that would embrace people regardless of racial ethnic background, that embraces people regardless of citizenship status. And I think that's a lesson we can draw on as we think about labor organizing in the future. Certainly more than we can say for many other aspects <laughs> of the labor movement. <laughs> in um, the 70s. Yes. <laughs> Elaborating on the, um, uh, on the uh, immigration element, um, uh, can you talk about how since um, you know you saw this influx of uh, immigrant labor in the domestic sphere, has there been a regression in rights or has there been a plateau in terms of uh, where the movement is, what it can push for, and how people organize? I think the movement in the 1970s had some very important victories. Um, and I think eliminating the historical association of African-American women and the assumptions of slavery that were built into the occupation was one of their most important victories. I think winning certain kinds of labor rights, state-based unemployment insurance, federal minimum wage, those were incredibly important victories for this movement in the 1970s. I think what complicates those victories is precisely the shifting composition of the workforce. Many of the immigrants who were coming in were undocumented, not all of them were, but essentially that meant that uh, the power imbalance between employer and employees began to shift even more, and employers were able to wield more power over their workers because their workers sometimes didn't speak the language or sometimes didn't have documentation. And so I think we see uh, a diminishing of rights, not because the movement of the 70s wasn't successful, but because the circumstances changed so dramatically by the 1980s and the 1990s that I think the really the terrain of political struggle for domestic workers shifted dramatically. And so it became around a question of citizenship, uh, around status, around language, um, and kinds of issues that the movement in the 1970s hadn't really dealt with as effectively since what they were fighting for was citizenship-based rights, uh, to which they were successful at winning, but it didn't really apply to the workers who were coming in the, in, in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. And now we're still fighting for inclusion of home care workers under the minimum wage. And That's so right. We're... That's right. And, 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 so, and, I, and I think that raises a really important point about the partial victories and how those partial victories, again, become uh, extremely important in creating distinctions among workers because now home care workers are one of the fastest growing, well, since, since this movement, home care workers have been one of the fastest growing sectors of the workforce. Um, and we have increasing numbers that don't qualify for federal minimum wage. And so I think we have to begin to think about a 
uh, a broader way to offer protections for workers without these kinds of distinctions of inclusion and exclusion. And I mean, it's interesting because even within the home care sector, I mean, I feel like there, there are almost two poles of it because you see in one sense, it's sort of like they are the most the, the most disempowered uh, of the domestic uh, labor workforce in some ways because they don't qualify for any of these federal protections. And yet you also see a huge unionization movement going on within the home care sector, sort of on the other end of that spectrum, and also a large African-American presence still um, alongside immigrants. So um, do you, are you are you sort of following where the home care sector is going, or do you want to say a few words? Yes, that? a little bit. Um, you, know, you know, I think there are, you know, Many of the African-American women who left private household work did end up as home care workers. And for them, that was a step up because it was a move away from sort of unregulated individual employment into more of an institutionalized setting where uh, these home care workers are very often employed by state agencies or by nonprofit agencies to go out and do work. So it's more in, in that sense, it's more of an institutional setting, even though the labor itself is done in private spaces of the home. Uh, but that structure of the occupation um, in which people, a large number of women were employed by a state agency, for example, enabled workers in this sector to, to be able to organize because they were all paid by the same state agency. Uh, and that's been a huge success, and I think it's been a very important kind of indicator for where the labor movement is going, uh, I think, in a very promising way in terms of uh, ad beginning to address um, service sector workers, beginning to address uh, women of color uh, as really the agents of the labor movement today, um, and beginning to branch out, I think, in very important ways. But I think it's been very promising. Um, and But I think there are still questions of how do we begin to organize all of the other household workers, all of the other domestic workers. Um, and I, I hope that this history can, you know, give us some insight and some lessons into how we can begin to do that. And beyond just worker organizing, we're in this moment where the movement for black lives is in the headlines every week. And so I'm wondering what organizers in the broader black freedom movement can, what lessons they can take from the women in your book? Yeah. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, has been one of the most interesting developments in uh recent black political organizing. There's been a lot of emphasis and a lot of focus on uh, police violence and police brutality. A lot of it focused on young black men um, for obvious reasons, but it's interesting to me that the narrative of police violence and the narrative of police brutality has been so male-focused. And I think one of the things that the Black Lives Matter movement has done is to begin to talk about gender and the importance of gender uh, and, and other groups of people, trans people, for example, who are also victims of police violence and police brutality. I, you know, I see certain parallels here with the civil rights movement and the narratives of the civil rights movement. I think we have a certain narrative of race right now in this country that's a very male-defined narrative of racism and racial violence and the struggle for racial justice in the same way that we have a very male-defined narrative of the civil rights movement that was uh, about uh, political power, uh, that was about the elimination of Jim Crow laws. 
And I think we have to begin to look beneath the surface, behind the headlines, to really try to understand the role of women, black women, uh, working class women, working class women of color. And I think they will offer us a very different picture of that particular moment and I think this particular moment that we're living in right now. And I think uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, which was started by, by, by Alicia Garza, who actually coincidentally, not coincidentally, I should say, uh, is now working with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Um, and I think it points to the, her broad vision, her vision of uh, intersectionality, of the ways in which gender is tied to class and race and sexuality, uh, and how we need to use that kind of lens to begin to think about black freedom and need to move away from this idea of a male-defined notion of racism or a male-defined notion of liberation. And that was Premila Nadison. She is a professor at Barnard, and her book, Household Workers Unite, will be out next week. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it is everybody's favorite time in the podcast. Arg! I wish I'd written that. It seems not entirely fair for me to arg a piece when I'm cited in it, but I'm going to choose uh, pull a point of privilege here and... Uh, Friend of the podcast, Jennifer Pan's anti-work labor politics are on point. I couldn't let this week pass without talking about this piece. It is at the fader because Jen is bringing radical labor politics into pop culture publications, and it's called What Does Self-Care Really Mean? Self-care is something we talk about a lot in movement and activist spaces, and as Jen points out, is often drawn from Audre Lorde's famous line, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. At its best, Jen writes, self-care enacts a labor slowdown and asserts the right to be lazy, the right to stop working. And yet there are ways in which self-care can turn into yet more work. Rather than being a time to unplug, to spend time with friends or family or much-needed time alone, rather than curling up with a trashy novel or going to the movies or taking a hot bath, self-care can become a process of work unto itself, a specialized diet and exercise plan, an expensive retreat, another item to check off the endless to-do list that contributes to the culture of busy. Self-care can also wind up as a class signifier, who can afford to take that expensive yoga retreat? That's not to shame people for doing what they can. I certainly take vacations and weekend trips when I can afford them and squeeze them into my schedule. But it is to note that the way self-care occupies space, and particularly feminist discourse these days, can often feel like more like another status marker than an actual effort to stay okay. Jen correctly connects us to the lean-in corporate feminist dictum that anything other than more work gets in the way of women's success. It is not enough now to have the famed second shift, but now you have a third shift, as Jen writes. Conversations on self-care often fail to differentiate between recovering from work and recovering for it. In the midst of the movement for black lives, self-care has taken on a whole additional significance, one closer to Lord's original meaning. Activists in places like Ferguson, Missouri, plan self-care nights in groups in order to check in with each other, to take some time to be human together, and recover from the very, very real trauma of repeated conflicts with the police. Self-care in those spaces is a way to heal, and making it an intentional part 
of the movement in a social way helps reiterate that caring for ourselves and one another should be a responsibility not of individuals but of society. To that end, Jen closes her piece recalling my piece about a politics of leisure, one that posits, she writes, painting your nails or going to a movie in lieu of working not as something we have to designate as self-care, but merely as living a life. To do that, of course, we need policies that preserve our free time, like the paid family leave I talked about earlier on this show, paid sick days, paid vacation, a shorter work week, as well as a culture that understands that lives, particularly women's lives, are more than the work of the capitalist workplace or the work of the family or even the making of the revolution. And from the world of self-care to the phenomenon of overwork, um, in an interesting compliment yeah. to the self-care piece, I looked this week at Mia Takumitsu's piece, Forced to Love the Grind, in the uh, online at Jacobin. Um, and in it, she talks about this phenomenon of passion in the workplace. And it's sort of the flip side of the self-care debate uh, in that it talks about actualizing the self through work. Um, and this is framed in the discourse of voluntary overwork, um, you know, personal loyalty to an employer, and sort of giving your all in the office. And she talks about how we think of passion as a virtue in the workplace, but is it really? Um, she talks about people like Steve Jobs and these icons of corporate America and Silicon Valley who seem to have it all and somehow live these amazingly fulfilling lives while also devoting their lives 24-7 to uh, making a better product. Um, and she reflects on the phenomenon that was actually recently exposed in the New York Times investigation of Amazon's grueling office work culture. All of this shows a broader trend across corporate workplaces that are increasingly likened to white-collar sweatshops. That is, the pressure to compete with your coworkers and to demonstrate loyalty to the boss eclipses uh, concerns about personal welfare and even basic human rights at work. Um, but of course, all of this is framed in language of voluntarism with the do what you love ethos. So workers are seen as choosing to kill themselves with work. But as Takamitsu says, um, this is not actually so voluntary. It is, is a uh, the product of relentless workplace peer pressure um, and also pressure from above. So she says, in this world, legendary figures are the ones who remain in the office for 100 hours straight working through their children's musical recitals and 104 degree fevers. The idea is that workers become superhuman through the refusal of self-care. Um, all this boils down to the idea that uh, we're expected to sort of present this masochistic impulse to work ourselves to the bone. Um, and it's really an impulse that sort of began uh, in the sort of post-war uh, era where we had kind of these militarized workplaces. And now that has been sort of incorporated into this idea of finding yourself uh, through basically, a, 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 you know, finding ways to obsess over how to perfect your the job that you're doing. Um, it's a little bit parallel to the Taylorism that we saw in the early 20th century. But back then, there was actually a progressive backlash against this culture of overwork and this sort of um, uh, you know, uh, uh, bone sort of crushing pressure to uh, make everything uh, make everything as efficient as possible in the workplace. Um, that was sort of widely criticized as a dehumanizing phenomenon, but now that's sort of making a comeback under the banner of passion at work. So in the end, she doesn't have any big answers for us, but she says uh, in her conclusion, passion is all too often a cover for overwork 
cloaked in the rhetoric of self-fulfillment. And indeed, this is a self-perpetuating cycle. The emptier our lives feel, the more we're engulfed in this Stockholm Syndrome-like addiction to work because we are taught that this can substitute for actual human experiences of love, fun, and genuine passion. But in this kind of learned helplessness that we've become acclimatized to, uh, we search to fill the gap by doing exactly the kinds, of, the kinds of things that create those gaps in our lives. And this isn't just unproductive, it's self-destructive. And in the end, we grow more, more and more self-absorbed in a push for selflessness and more selfish in our desire to please the boss instead of ourselves. We should note that that piece is an excerpt from Mia's new book, which, if we are lucky, she will join us on Belabored to talk about soon. Uh, That is it for episode 84. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you are a hotel housekeeper who has filed suit against your boss or would like to, if you are have any uh, self care tips for us, if, you, uh, <laughs> if you'd like to tweet at us at hashtag belabored, if you are a uh, bank teller or a um, somebody who does not get paid family leave, we always want to hear from you. At uh, you can also email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. We'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.